Well, hello there. It's Monday. I'm David Robertson. I'm Christopher Cotter. And we are the Religious Studies Project, as we have been for five and a half years now. Yeah, I can't quite believe that. I was thinking about that the other day. <laughs> Where have those years gone? Oh, well. I certainly had a lot more hair when we started. Uh, yeah, I had a lot fewer grey ones when we started. Um, it would be fun to compare a photograph to us then and now um, as, you know, undergraduates and doctors and the amount of weight gained and hair lost yeah. in the picture would be quite striking. We're brought to you this week, as ever, by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religion. And more on them later... But for now, we're passing over to Dan Gorman, who's been speaking with Laurie F. Maffley-Kip about... Uh, Jesuits, Mormons and American religion in the world. Uh, so, take it away, Dan. We're here at the Morris Inn at the University of Notre Dame. We just finished up the Kushwas Seminar's biannual seminar in American religion, discussing John McGreevy's book on Jesuits and the world. So you have been writing about space and geography and understanding religion for more than 20 years now, beginning with your essay in Thomas Tweed's edited volume, Retelling U.S. Religious History. I'd be curious to know how your views have evolved and what you believe is the importance of space and geography in studying American religions. That essay was my initial foray into this field, and it was more of a thought piece based on um, sort of the, the hypothetical question of what would you do if you didn't narrate American religious history mm -hmm. from the perspective of European movement from east to west, and particularly British American movement. Um, and in, in a sense, it was, it was also... Um, inspired by the work in the 1930s of, of, his, of Herbert Bolton, who was um, a sort of a historian of empires in the New World, and his basic observation that the Spanish Empire had sort of been a part of, of um, sort of North America and South America long before the British ever came along. So what would it do to sort of retell the story of the growth of the U.S nation and religion in that um, sort of setting, but come at it from the perspective of all of these different movements into North America at various points in time. So that was, again, I think a framework that I laid out, and since then I've been, uh, I guess, um, exploring different, different avenues into that. Um, most uh, recently, um, I've been spending time doing work on Mormon history and looking at Mormonism. But I think that, that the focus on space has also then led me to think about Mormonism differently. How do I think about sort of Mormonism as having a particular kind of center in the United States, but also having um, you know, other areas in other parts of the world that are significant for particular purposes. So today the book we've been talking about, American Jesuits in the World by John McGreevy, um, it's dealing with well, somewhat missionary activity, but a little different from what you focus on, because you're often talking about American Mormons going outwards, whereas he's talking about, at first, Europeans coming to missionize America. Um, can you talk a little bit about the differences you see between Mormons and Jesuits operating on the world stage? Well, they're, they're very different. I mean, cer certainly um, they're different in terms of... Uh, sort of having a basically a different focus on what they were doing with other people. So for Jesuits, Jesuits are in a particular Catholic order. They are their jobs uh revolve around educating 
people administering the sacraments, sort of keeping people in the faith. For Mormons, uh, the goal uh, tends to be to create habits of discipline and industry much like those of the missionaries themselves. Mm. Um, there's sort of a distinct separation between the, the, the kinds of spiritual practices that, that a Jesuit missionary undertakes sure. and what he's trying to inculcate in other people, whereas for Mormons, they were sort of one and the same thing. Um, so that's just one small difference. But there are, I think, on all kinds of different levels, there are differences. Now, there are also similarities because Mormons are also exiles, perhaps exiles in their own land, but they have a very... Um, I guess the best way to put it is angular relationship to the U.S. government in the 19th century and often uh, a very combative relationship. So they aren't, they aren't sold on the idea of the nation state as necessarily an all-encompassing good, just as the Catholics are disaffected from the U.S. government in various ways. Well, certainly one of the points that came up in the Q&A session today was that the Jesuits were roundly denounced as a secret society on the floor of Congress, one that should be banned. But there wasn't widespread Catholic persecution in the 19th century the way we saw against mm -hmm. the Mormons. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I think you could argue with that. There's a burning of convents. There well, were uh, riots in the streets in Philadelphia and Boston. So um, in some ways, I think that the tensions were more made manifest in more physical kinds of ways than they were for the Mormons. There are a few incidents with the Mormons, and the Mormons certainly uh, fought back at various points. So um, I think, actually, a comparison of them is, is really helpful to mm -hmm. sort of see the ways that Protestant America was shaping the limits of its own toleration. I, I suppose what I was thinking of more was the fact that there wasn't there was not state legislation against the Catholic Church in a way there was, for instance, when the governor of Missouri declared war on the Mormon people, saying, right. leave my state or I'm going to kill all of you. Uh, yeah. th that is a difference. You're right. That's a, that's a difference. Although I think one of the interesting things about uh, John McGreevy's book is the way he points out how um, assiduously Protestants and Protestant Americans work to create laws that would exclude Catholics in certain kinds of ways. So from public education, in fact, there were, there were sort of certain rules put in place that made it obvious that the Catholics were not going to, uh, sort of fall within the bounds of the law or they, I mean, they, their kind of education wouldn't be acceptable as a form of public education. So it seems to me that the very creating and shaping of laws is, is another way to, uh, to sort of put boundaries around religious toleration. Now, I'm curious also, you've obviously read the book, you just delivered a short paper commenting on it. Um, if you were writing a book about transnational religion in the 19th century, uh, I mean, McGreevy's focusing on the ideas of nationhood and politics, but what would be sort of the factors you'd want to pursue? What do you see as mattering the most? So, in fact, I am writing a book on transnational religion in that I'm writing a, a history of Mormonism that tries to take seriously Mormonism as a global religion and an international movement from the beginnings, not, not simply since World War II, which um, it, it's certainly the case that there are now more Mormons outside the U.S. than in. But even in the 1850s, there were more Mormons in England than in the U.S. Oh, certainly. They were very active with sending missionaries to also to Scandinavia, as well as England. Later to Scandinavia, yeah. There, there were sort of waves of, of, um, of migration and mission, missionization and migration. But starting 
starting with England um, and moving into Scandinavia by the 1860s and 1870s. And all of those, or many, many of those people came over to the U.S. and really saved what would what might have been a dying movement um, yes, by the 1850s. I believe you mentioned during the Q&A period that most Mormons at the end of the 19th century in America were foreign-born. Either foreign-born or, yeah, or, I mean, second generation at best, because, yeah, the bulk had been uh, immigrants. And so that's not a comment that the church uh, stresses very much anymore. No, but it's also not a comment that other historians have noticed much. I mean, they, in thinking not. of Mormonism as an American, I think the focus has been so much on Mormonism as an, a distinctly American religion, which is certainly true in terms of the influences on its founders, but it's not true in terms of who joined the movement in the first half century. Very interesting. Um, I think, I mean, the claim you're making will certainly overhaul graduate reading lists yeah. <laughs> around the country, including my own. Yeah. Um, so the other thing, um, I'm thinking about, so at my university, the University of Rochester, our graduate, well, loosely defined, our graduate interests are supposed to be around the, the world of goods, the world of nations, and the world of ideas. Um, loosely, so a nice way to integrate cultural and social history. Mm -hmm. Now, listening to the Q&A today, lo and behold, the comments wind up revolving around ideas, goods, and nations. So the comments from, for instance, Thomas Bender, one of your co-panelists, saying that we should think of the Jesuits as a cosmopolitan religion. Um, the discussion from Dr. McGreevy that the later Jesuits were embracing American nationalism even though they weren't necessarily okay with separation of church and state. And your discussion of the culture the Jesuits were bringing from around the world. Mm -hmm. Now, I just recapped for the listeners a lot of material, and I certainly threw a lot at you. But I'd be curious, um, these concepts of both the physical things and the, uh, the more intangible things, how do you, what do you see those as the place in American religion? Um, what do I see the, as the place of those in American religion? So I suppose, um, I mean, is there one, is there an aspect the nationhood, ideology, material culture. Do you see one factor as being more important than another? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, no. I think, in fact, I mean, I think what I was trying to call for was um, not separating them, mm. or at least disaggregating them in some way, but not not um, isolating any of them from one from another. I mean, I think um, it, it's it's easy. We often get a little too free with our definitions of globalism, um, internationalism, transnationalism. Sure. Um, and I think part of what my colleague was calling for was uh, the use of the term cosmopolitan as sort of an orientation toward mm. the rest of the world. What it, what it seems to me, though, that using that term duck can do is to... Um, Draw attention away from the kinds of the way power flows in those movements and the power of states. Uh, that is is one kind of power. Economic power is another kind of power. Um, I think that's how I would break things down. I don't know, but good, you know, material goods uh, are interesting to sort of focus on, but there's also a, attending to that the question of who's paying for what. Oh, sure, uh, yeah. right, and of course that that determines the flow of those goods. So if you were generally. to say simply that. You know, oh, the Jesuits were cosmopolitan. That may be obscuring who's leading the, their operations. Right. So if you just notice that they're bringing chalices over from Italy uh, and putting them into, uh, you know, chapels in North Dakota, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about uh, the circumstances behind those movements and 
So you don't, you just don't want to separate those two things out. I guess that's a, the simple point I'm trying to make. So the, a lot of the conversation today dealt with the fact that the Jesuits do eventually wind up launching outward from their bases in America to the Pacific Empire. And that really intersects with several of your books dealing with Pacific missionaries. Could you um, expand a bit on the missionaries in the Pacific? Yes, I think in the 19th century was the, the Pacific century in that regard. Um, I mean, if, if one could say that the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries f sort of focused on Atlantic movements with the slave trade, with sort of European migrations to the New World. Um, the Pacific century is very much caught up, for, at least in terms of sort of the relationship of the U.S. to other nations, with movements from uh, various countries in Asia, eastward, um, the U.S. becoming an imperial power, mm -hmm. moving to places like Hawaii and later down to Central and South America. Um, and those sorts of exchanges and contexts uh, become sort of focal points for religious, interesting religious phenomena. Sure. And then the other thing I'm thinking about that was coming up towards the end of the conversation was that McGreevy's book is mostly focusing on putting Jesuits into the international story not so much on their interior life. I mean, he, right. he touches on that in the discussion of Father Baps, but mm -hmm. um, it's not the main point of the book. And we're sitting here at the Kushwa Center, which has, this is the nature of spirituality and history has been a recurring topic for them. Do you think the book could have done more to consider the interior life of these priests? By interior life, do you mean, uh, I mean, he does consider things like the pie, sort of the devotionalism, Right then, the the increasing devotionalism of Jesuits in the nineteenth century, which is tied to interiority, I guess oh, sure. one might say. Well, I suppose I was thinking of um, the one gentleman's comments, which were about the book doesn't really deal with the sort of spiritual exercises the Jesuits do. Yeah, it, it is certainly more focused on the Jesuits as missionaries, and it, it struck me as that conversation was going on that um, that. You know, Jesuits are not necessarily trying to inculcate the same disciplines in the people they are leading to the faith sure. as they do in themselves. And in, in a sense, those are almost two different tasks of a missionary. Is how one question is how do you um, how do you inculcate discipline, education, uh, bodily exercises, or whatever into your subjects? But as members of a Jesuit of the Jesuit order, how do you try to maintain your own spiritual discipline, which might be a very different thing? And oh, certainly. That's certainly uh, not, I think, where McGreevy's interest. Well, and is. that also brings up an interesting contrast with your work, for instance, studying Mormons who are take the Protestant idea of every man his own priest to an extreme, compared to the Catholic priest saying there are certain things that are just for us and not for you. Exactly, exactly. So Mormons, yes, they're trying to replicate themselves and to say, this is how you live a Christian life. Do, do as I do. Um, it's a lay order. There aren't trained, there isn't a trained ministry in that sense. So I think, yeah, the tasks are really different. And what, what Jesuits are trying to preserve for themselves and their own spiritual lives can be, and in some situations is very different from what they're trying to get others to do. Another topic that comes up involving uh, America and the world in, Mr. in Dr. McGreevy's book is the fact that Jesuits were becoming more politically liberal as the 20th century approached, um, but they had an interesting relationship to America as empire. For instance, they're perfectly happy to sail on American ships to go save the Pacific. But on the other hand, they opposed, for instance, the war in the Philippines in the early 1900s because it's a war against a Catholic nation. Right. So 
in the Mormon church, did you find similar ambivalence about the imperial message? Uh, early on, there's a lot of ambivalence about it. Um, at Mormons, when Mormons uh, go send off missionaries to the South Pacific in the mid-19th century, later to places like New Zealand, um, the message is, we are also being oppressed by our government, just as you are being oppressed. In other words, they're an anti-colonialist movement, and they're sort of spreading a message of you know, joining common cause with the oppressed peoples in Utah, and we will, you know, have more strength together. Um, so yeah, it's sort of an, an interesting thing, and of course, by the 20th century, they are um, uh, certainly um, in line with uh, sort of American uh, sort of value, liberal values in a very different way. Um, but there are other traditions that have a much more, I would say, a much uh, more conflicted relationship to the U.S. government throughout. So African American Christians, for example, also have some more um, debates about how much to support the American imperial project in various places, be it Haiti, where there's a long tradition of uh, African-American missionaries in Haiti, or Africa, mm -hmm. because they're, they have their own loyalties uh, as yes. they see it to people in Africa. So it's, um, I, think, I think the whole issue of, sort of loyalties to religion and nation, aside from the Protestant mainstream one, are always have always been much more conflicted and um, often complicated than we've realized. So I've spent a lot of time talking about comparative aspects of your work and Dr. McGreevy's work, but I'm curious now, the role of the Catholic Church today in the United States is just, so just to narrow in on Catholicism, um, the Catholic Church today is a large supporter of the United States government, although it's obviously at odds with well, sometimes it odds over social issues. Mm -hmm. Do you think that trend is going to continue of the Catholic Church um, having a liberal voice in American society? Because it, there certainly was a resurgence of conservatism under John Paul II and Pope Benedict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, historians typically aren't very good prophets in yeah, this so regard. I, so so. I caveat all of this, but this <laughs> may go wrong. Right, right. Um, you know, I... I think there are sort of potentially lots of countercultural elements in Catholicism, in this, even the social teachings of Catholicism. There is an anti-militarism, which goes way back, um, that is combined um, in ways different for Catholics with their uh, sort of pro-life policy. So even though, um, you know, they might agree with evangelical Christians or other Protestants about questions of, of abortion, they'd part ways over the role of the American military uh, and its work abroad. So it's it's a complicated picture, I think. And it's, um, as we've seen, I mean, there, uh, and as a historian, I suppose I, my uh, take is it'll probably come around again. <laughs> you know, so we sure. will see more episodes of liberals. I'm not a Whiggish historian, so I don't believe that we are in some kind of inevitable march toward progress of all sorts or enlightenment. Um, and, you know, th therefore, it's hard to predict what the next step will oh, absolutely. look like. The thing that's been weighing on my mind less so than uh, recent political developments yeah. is um, population shifts and demographics in the Catholic Church. I mean, right. certainly with the rise of birth control, despite what bishops might want to know, the families are smaller now than they were in, say, the 1800s. Right. And certainly with the rise of secularity, I am curious to see the role of, ca of Catholicism in American public life. Yeah. It, Dr. McGreevy's book deals with them taking on a larger role, and now I wonder, as the population shrinks, what's going to happen? That's a great question. Um, you know, we have, 
certainly seen revivals before in oh, this sure. country, um, so it's hard to predict. But I, the demographic shifts are obviously significant, but exactly how they'll play out, I think, is is not um, easy to to prognosticate. Um, just because these people are sort of, just because there are people in the southern hemisphere who are sort of becoming the voice of Christianity, it's not clear to me what political payoff that has or what what uh, path that portends. In fact, if you look at something that I know a little more about in sort of Protestant missionary work, um, the kinds of Protestantism that are making inroads in places like Africa and South America are some of the more conservative kinds of Protestantism, Pentecostalism. Which, which is a counter-narrative to the modern one of growing secularity exactly. in America. Exactly. Exactly. And now they're sending missionaries back to the United States. Really? Right? Yes. Yes. Now there are re reverse mi migratory flows of missionaries. They're, one of the biggest churches in Europe, in Western Europe right now, is a church... Um, and this may be out of date because it was a few years ago someone told me this. But there's a, a huge uh, evangelical church that's that was founded by, I think, a Nigerian pastor that has grown by leaps and bounds in Europe. Now, who that's growing among in, in Europe is, is an interesting, is an interesting question. question. But, of course, the, the makeup of Europe, of Western Europe and the United States is changing as well. So the demography sure. may just follow, you know, back to the northern hemisphere. Well, this discussion of transnational Catholicism and, you know, which which political voice will win out makes me think of the original intention for why we're sitting here in Notre Dame. So for our listeners, this conference was originally meant to be part of a, a much larger conference on the work of Mark Knoll, the historian of American Christianity. Uh, unfor due to unfortunate circumstances, the conference had to be mostly scrapped. But I'm curious what you would think of this to tie to bring in Mr. Null as a he's an evangelical historian and a historian of evangelicalism. And his recent work, he's been abandoning American studies to some extent to talk about the world. His book Clouds of Witnesses is about Africa and Asia. Mm -hmm. So the work of Mark Null, how would how, if at all, does that influence your research? Um, do you see his views about um, pluralism having it do you think those are going to carry more weight going forwards in the academy? Uh, in certain sections of the academy, absolutely. I mean, there's a, yeah, and Mark has been, um, a pioneer in that sort of field of looking at global Christianity for a long time and thinking about, he's a historian with an eye to the future and where the church is going. Um, and that's certainly, uh, sort of a big piece of the puzzle that I think has trickled back into the academy in all kinds of ways. So, um, I don't see that, that, stopping by any means. But, you know, the question of what globalism or increasing globalization of any of these religious traditions actually means for piety, for spirituality, for institutional life is, um, is I think, the next big question. We know what it means in terms of bodies moving from one place to another, but how that actually then plays out in terms of building institutions, building sort of structures, um, is anybody's guess. Well, and you've also mentioned um, on sort of a final note that you and the other panelists talking about how the Catholics have become, you know, comfortable with their place in American society. 
Whereas Mark Null in his works is talking about how evangelicals want to make this sort of a... Some evangelicals want to make the country an explicitly evangelical nation. And he rejects that as an evangelical yes. man. So do you see these fights in the academy at all over how to define religion? Should it be exclusively in a sort of Protestant historical mold? Or should we find new ways of thinking and defining religion? Hmm. Ways that aren't just tied to Christianity. So are you think, yeah, I, I think the horse is out of the barn on that one. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't see going back to... Um, any kind of um, sort of narrow focus on either churches as you know, just sort of just institutional life or Protestantism. Um, but I think in some ways sort of the study of religion in all of its dimensions um, can only enrich the future study of Protestantism along with other traditions. Yeah, there's. I think pluralism is here to stay, or at least yeah. that's what that's what we're supporting. Huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, on sort of a final note, I'll ask a genuinely final note. I'll ask um, some scholars consider Mormonism a Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Others say it is a Christian-inspired faith. Where do you stand on those issues? Um, it's certainly inspired by Protestantism, and that's where, if you look at the sort of first um, members of the movement, they they came th by 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 way of other Christian traditions. Um, I don't, you know, the theological question of whether it is a Christian tradition is, I don't feel, uh, as a scholar, is mine to answer. Um, I, I guess on one level I take um, seriously the self-identification of Mormons who see themselves as Christian. I think it's an interesting question to, to look at. I think there are other Mormons who don't see themselves as Christian, so that's also an interesting question, is where, where are the fault lines and why did, when and where does that question matter? I think those, as a cultural historian, those are the more interesting questions for me. But I am not a theologian, and I'm not um, a historian of a particular kind of church tradition. So I'll, I'll leave that to the experts. Laurie Mathley Kipp discussing bodies in space, what they think, what they say, what they do. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Dan. Really great to hear from you again, and great to get um, an interview on some... Um, religions uh, that we haven't uh, featured as much as we might have on the podcast and and to get that sort of you know in the world bit as well you know one one wonders how, what's not in the world i don't know in a global context i think uh, i yeah. think is, is what he means but um great to be keeping up our uh you know american interviews um as chris says you know we don't always feature too many uh, interviews on sort of Christianity, like Islam, Buddhism stuff. It's quite difficult to get these ones get good quality. that fit the kind of critical um, historical perspective that we like. But w when we do get the opportunity, we jump at the chance and Dan's doing a great job here. Of course, the American perspective is very important to us, um, as is the European context, uh, recently a lot of Eastern European scholars on the project, because of our sponsors, the NAASR and the EASR and the IAHR. And that's become a bit of an issue this week. Yes. Um, so, folks, if you scroll down our Facebook page a bit, our Twitter feed, or you can jump on certainly to the European Association for the Study of Religions website, um, you'll see there's been a joint statement made by the IAHR and the EASR about this. Uh, there's a new organization that emerged uh, recently called the European Academy of Religion um, in Bologna. And there were 
gathering together various scholars, politicians, learned societies um, for a meeting. And uh, and then quite a few of us were a little bit miffed at this, thinking, well, there already is an EASR, so what's the what's the deal, bro? What's the need for an EAR? Um, lend me your ear, as it were. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they've made a um, pretty, pretty excellent statement, I think, on the whole affair. Yeah, the analogy would be it's it's been compared incorrectly i think with the situation in north america where you have the naasr or um, munificent sponsors and the aar who are the larger organization who have been heavily criticized not least by russell mccutcheon and other representatives of the naasr um, for their big tent approach, which is essentially theology by the back door and um, their increasing positioning of themselves as representing a very situated and um, religiously driven study of religion. Um, and the, the, the comparison's been made here where we have the, the uh, EASR and then this new... A European Academy. But of course, the situation is different because in North America, the NAASR is, is started to correct the problems with the AAR. Um, whereas in this situation, we don't have those problems because we have the EASR, which yeah. is proper, historical, <laughs> non-confessional, um, globally um, located study. Um, so there's no need to start... Um, uh, another body which then gives us which has those problems in bill it makes no sense yeah and so yeah the representatives from both the IEHR and the um, EASR went along to the inaugural meeting of um, this European Academy of Religion and uh, the, the the statement was that whilst dialogue and the need for dialogue was spoken about at length um, all opportunities for dialogue at the actual conference um, seemed to be uh, somewhat shut down um there was also so there was some um consternation that the easr's invitation seemed to be being used to imply their support for the founding of the ear um where uh, quite the contrary was mm. true and they went along uh, more to see if their suspicions were correct indeed uh, so obviously we're just commenting on this uh, from the sidelines, having having seen various um, bits and bobs online, um, which you should go and, and dig into and investigate yourselves. Indeed, I don't, don't think we're we're simply taking position in an internecine argument, you know, or, or a sort of argument within the field. It's, it is more important than that because it, it's it's a question of how governments and other policymakers. Uh, recognize our field and what our field does if our field is taken over by people who have a religionist agenda um represent you know uh, citizenship and interfaith dialogue over a disinterested non-confessional historical study of religion then we are extremely da- um, endangering what we do dave is absolutely right and we'll tell you more about that next week because we're when we're recording next week, we'll just be about to both head off to a conference in Bonn um, on that whole good religion, bad religion, um, representations of religion to the state, 
in the media and so on. So we'll tell you more about that next week. Excellent. Uh, but do check out those things on our pages and uh, come back next week for an interview that David's recorded on angel spirituality with Tara Utrainen. And uh, we look very much forward to that. Thanks for recording that, David. I hope it's good. So do I. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.